You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. It is fairly common in churches today for Christians to pray for a revival to sweep through the American people and through American institutions. Uh, We rightly, and I think biblically, petition the Lord that he would show us mercy, pour out his spirit, and reignite passions that once burned brightly but have recently cooled. Robert Caldwell writes in his book, Theologies of the American Revivalists, that, quote, Most evangelicals would indeed welcome a great move of God's Holy Spirit in our churches. As the march of secularization continues, revivalists and ministers will have plenty of material to fill their sermons with cultural critique. Spiritual and cultural decline is indeed the great theme revivalists use to get sinners' attention when they begin preaching the gospel. Yet, more may be needed than merely an arsenal of criticisms and a basic understanding of the gospel. A robust revival theology, one that intimately unites head and heart, scripture proclama- proclamation and life, would certainly help galvanize preaching, capture the religious imagination of the law, and aid in imparting a theological vision that draws sinners to life and raises up God-glorifying disciples. Uh, In other words, when we pray for revival, we should know what we're asking for. Uh, Fortunately, the Americans have something of a tradition of reflection on the nature of revival, albeit an atrophied tradition in our own day. Our guest today is here to help us recover that tradition. My name is Coyle Neal, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Our guest is Dr. Robert W. Caldwell III. Dr. Caldwell is an associate professor of church history at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Communion in the Spirit, The Holy Spirit is the Bond of Union in the Theology of Jonathan Edwards, and the co-author of The Trinitarian Theology of Jonathan Edwards. He lives in Fort Worth with his wife and two daughters, where he attends Rock Creek Baptist Church. Today, he is here with us to talk about his recent book, The Aforesighted Theologies of the American Revivalists, From Whitfield to Finney. Uh, Dr. Caldwell, thank you for coming on the show. Yes, thank you, Coyle, for having me. This is great. Uh, well, I want to start with a with a thought experiment. Um, let's uh, let's say we were to, uh, to to hold a revival service uh, and invite all the main figures in your book to come and preach, uh, Whitfield and and Croswell and Edwards, uh, Hopkins and Bellamy and Dwight and Asbury and Finney and Hodge and Campbell and I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've left someone <laughs> out there. Uh, uh, and we we charge them all with giving a basic revival sermon. Uh, is there going to be a difference in the the core message preached by any of these guys? Like, are 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 the words going to be different coming from anyone, or, or would they all fly off in just different directions? Well, no, that's a wonderful question. No, they um, they would probably the core believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The the, the core of that it would be fairly the same, pretty much the same in in, in all of them. Um, it's just the what um, what does faith look like? How does one um, exercise faith? The, the the questions all related to that, those backgrounds to faith and the fruits of faith. That's kind of where you would get the differences of opinion on these what I call these different revival theologies uh, that um, that I looked at in the book. Yeah, and uh, uh, I guess that's uh, uh, maybe the the next question is well, where where then do they where then do they differ maybe in terms of application? Ah, right. Because yes. they they would all maybe preach the same sermon, uh, uh, but uh, they they would they would understand right uh, that what's going on while they're preaching is different. Uh, and I, I, I I'm not I'm not going to ask you to summarize each of them individually because of course that's the book so our listeners can go buy the book. Uh, but can you maybe give us uh, uh, maybe kind of a big picture overview uh, of where these guys are, are going to be uh, uh, distinguished from each other in, in kind of broad sweeping terms? 
Well, you, you would have to start like I like I start the book out with the uh, the first great awakening. Basically, um, what, you know, we're talking about the issue of what what does it mean to uh, call people to faith? What what is it to come to faith? I'm um, what I term revival theology is this kind of combination of you know how to call people to the gospel. What's the theology of salvation? And, and then what are the convert what are the conversion expectations that are kind of placed in the various tradition? Um, the first kind of majority group that I look at is is related to the main group um, uh, that we normally associate with the First Great Awakening. This would be what I call in the book the moderate evangelical revivalists, and um, they would reproduce. They would have a um, they reproduce fairly faithfully what you normally got in the Puritan tradition, uh, the New England Puritan and English Puritan tradition in the uh, uh, leading up to it, which is basically they would. Uh, um, they would uh, call people to faith by using or calling people to um, uh, ex they would ex ex uh, excuse me sorry about that they would um, call forth the the uh, God's divine law the call to uh, God's holiness and um, in the hopes that in the midst of this kind of hearing the uh, of of the law of God's holiness that they would come under conviction of sin that the holy spirit would kind of activate in them their their conscience awaken their conscience to the realization that they need a, a savior that they are a sinner uh and then that those two um that they need to leave their own strivings their own good morality etc and and seek uh salvation in in Christ and, and elsewhere and so the idea of the original Say a Whitfield, for instance, he might call people to repentance and faith, but oftentimes um, the the normal expectation was he would um, is that people would come under conviction of sin, and it would be he would move on, and the people the the pastors would counsel these individuals over a period of days or weeks uh, through this 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 great divide in one's uh, kind of spiritual life from uh, from unbelief to belief. The, um, the the idea of what it means to believe savingly was um, really thought out. This kind of this is the uh, this is where, what you get in um, in these revivalists. They they really they, they didn't want to just say that belief was just this mere affirmation, which you would get later, but uh, is this kind of to total transformation of the heart, its affections, its desires, and its knowledge regarding God and the gospel. And so to discern that often took time, and so their conversion experiences, as I mentioned, often took. Um, was 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 not one that took a while. I mean, I'm sorry. It was one that did take a while, and it took a period of time to go through. So that's 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 where I start off. That's the main uh, theology of um, revival: the the combination of uh, how um, people like uh, Gilbert Tennant, uh, Whitfield, uh, even Edwards, even though Edwards has kind of got a little asterisk there. Um, uh, as uh, others, Samuel Davies, that's how they, they, they preach the gospel with that kind of ideal in view, um, the kind of a, a lengthy experiential conversion experience. Now, the whole arc of the book, I, I try to um, I try to trace these uh, these other traditions that kind of stem off from that. You have in the next century, uh, you have the development of that original idea. <clears throat> Um, in various uh, various traditions that uh, that develop along the way, and so um, the main 
Yeah, there's really no one main arc. There's there, there are several trajectories. But by the time you get into the end of, you know, in the midst of the Second Great Awakening, what you have are um, uh, conversions uh, that a conversion theology, a revival theology that stresses a much quicker conversion experience. It stresses much more of the um, and, and it was much more practical, you might want to say. It, it wasn't. Um, am, I, am I giving you too long an answer here? I'm sorry. Um, it, it, no, no, no. This is this is great. Yeah, it, it, it was it was more of a. It wasn't as thought out, you might want to say. The uh, the early American revivalists in the 1820s, well, 1820s, 1830s, they are they're, they're practitioners. They're 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 looking to save souls. Um, a, a lot of the revivalists in the first Great Awakening were were fairly well trained theologians, and so there's a lot of theology going into behind their the, the scenes of their um, um, of their revival theology. Uh, and you, you go from that that uh, theological well-thought theological atmosphere to this more practical atmosphere, you kind of um, you lose the, the lengthy conversions at the other end. You lose the uh, the kind of the um, the kind of the depth of the conversion experience. But um, you 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 do relieve relieve some burdens that um, that that may have illegitimately been placed on the uh, the the earlier revivalists um, or by the earlier revivalists in the in the first Great Awakening. So I mean that's um, I think I kind of uh, trace that trajectory. Those trajectories, there, there are various substrands to it. Um, uh, so, yes, to summarize, they're all calling people to faith and repentance in, in Christ. Um, the, uh, the, first, um, the moderate evangelical revivalists have this kind of lengthy understanding, this technically thought-out conversion expectation. Whereas in the Second Great Awakening, you actually you still have a, a good deal of that taking place, but you have other traditions, and the more popular traditions actually are less theological, more practical, quicker conversions that um, um, uh, that are often uh, there are much more spectacular uh, and um, kind of. Emphasize the Holy Spirit uh, uh, much more so the the kind of the the visible manifestations of the Spirit in the uh, shaking, the jerks, um, and these kind of more extraordinary manifestations in uh, kind of the frontier revivals, which 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 happened in the first Great yes, Awakening, those right? But which those were uh, that's, uh, a lot of people who are fans, well, who are fans of the first Great Awakening, are, don't realize that those things did happen in the first Great Awakening. They just weren't. Um, they weren't as widespread. In the Second Great Awakening, there were some revivalists that actually sought to um, – they, they saw this as the mark of the Spirit of God at work, whereas in the First Great Awakening, it was much more common to say, well, these may accompany the Spirit of God, but we're not going to encourage them. I don't know if that's uh, – yeah. I mean, the, the New Lights, I suppose, had something along those lines, right? That there, was, yes. there was some encouragement of the – uh, the the affections, but uh, but yeah, certainly not certainly not to the point where you have the uh, the manipulation, I guess, for to put it cynically, in the second great awakening. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm a I'm a first great yes. awakening guy, not a second one. So I, I uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll fly my colors here. Finney Finney is a bad guy. I'll go ahead and put that out there. Yeah yeah, I I, I tend to agree. I tend to go with more first awakening, great awakening myself. But as a historian, I'm trying to um, I'm trying to paint these people as as they wanted to see themselves uh, uh, painted. Sure and, um, sure. As they wanted to present themselves, and I try to I try to remain neutral. And I, I hope someone who is um, um, whatever uh, partisan you are on this uh, issue, you would you would find in my book uh, a fair treatment of all sides. So, yeah, and and I, I will say it's uh, it's it's uh, 
I was I was impressed with uh, with how even-handed and generous oh, you were uh, in the book. Uh, uh, and I'm I'm saying this as someone who, when I teach American history and uh, on the rare occasion I teach it, and when I cover the Second Great Awakening, Great Awakening, I I make people boo whenever I say Charles Finney in the classroom. <laughs> so well done being far more neutral than I am. Uh, uh, but it, it it is uh, uh and I guess uh, we can we can go the. Uh, uh, the affections direction, if if you want to, no. uh, but I, I I do think it's uh it, it is interesting to to think about the distinction, uh, in in goals isn't quite the right way to put it uh, because both both sets of revivalists you know both first and second great awakening, uh, revivalists are going to say our goal is godliness right our our goal is conversions in the Christian life, uh, but as you said at the beginning you know what that life functionally looks like uh, particularly at the beginning of it. Uh, is is such a marked distinction that happens really in a very short stretch of time, right? I, I mean, it's yeah, you know, it's it's a century between the uh, uh, between 1740 and 1840, but the the actual transition and and uh, maybe you can talk a little more about this the the shifting from the Edwards Whitfield uh, uh, kind of revival to the uh, uh, Finney Asbury kind of revival uh, Asbury maybe that's unfair to lump him in there, but that that later yes. kind of revival that happens pretty quickly, right? I mean, that's that's uh, not quite overnight, but very close to it. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. There's a number of uh, things going on there in that transition. I mean, you have, um, uh, yeah, let's see. You have the transition in, in well, you have you go you're going from colonial America to the new republic, um, and there were the, the, the great uh, convulsion of the American Revolution and the transformation that took place in American society. I mean, it, it, this was felt by revivalists, by Christians uh, throughout the society. That was there was also a great um, significant transformation in the uh, in the religious world with the I wouldn't say invasion, but with the the, the incredible growth of, say, Methodism. Methodism um, was very small. 1770. They weren't even on the, uh, the they weren't they were maybe Three or four thousand Methodists in the United States by 1840, there were, I would guess, uh, over a million, say. Uh, and, and by mid-century, they were, by and large, the, um, uh, the the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. With with that, I mean, th- those those kind of numbers and that shift, um, those those two uh, that that made a profound influence on the uh this this transition you might want to say uh between first and second great awakening revival theology the book i I go into much more detail on these different sub schools um and and try to try to um, look on the ground at these trajectories um one of the uh, significant um kind of schools or or group that i look at uh in this transition from the first to the second great awakening is the uh the, the group known as the the new divinity movement um um, they were the um, uh, led by Joseph Bellamy, Samuel Hopkins. Both of the, both Hel- Bellamy and Hopkins were were kind of uh, mentored by and um, shepherded by Jonathan Edwards, and uh, Edwards kind of put them through his kind of theological kind of school of the prophets. They uh, they, they worked with Edwards, as, uh, and Edwards. Um, would do this, and this became actually prominent amongst the New Divinity ministers, as they would uh, they uh, would take in young ministers, newly minted minted graduates from the schools, and um, they would kind of give them some for about six months to a year, some kind of theological and uh, hands-on kind of mentoring as to how to pastor a church. And so uh, both Bellamy and Hopkins did this, and uh, they learned from Edwards. 
But in the middle, uh, you know, in the decades after Edwards died in 1758, they uh, they took some of Edwards's ideas and um, uh, and reshaped his system and really uh, strongly emphasized uh, the, the doctrine of immediate repentance in in their um, in their theology and the doctrine of um, uh, human beings natural um, uh, ability to follow Christ and his moral inability to uh, to to follow him this kind of paradoxical tension and they they exclusively um, they, they preach these doctrines they, they, which come from Edwards they they but they uh, they, they preach them in such a way to um, to kind of legitimize a, a strongly revivalistic form of um, kind of New England Calvinism that became, um, it was very well known by the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. Um, most, uh, most of your New England revivals that were taking place, at least in the Congregationalist and Presbyterian context, were uh, very conversant with this kind of new divinity approach and so uh, to uh, revival theology. And and you don't speak to this in the book, so you're you're free to pass over it if you want to. But I know that one of the uh, one of the criticisms that that comes out later is that the the new divinity movement uh, takes Edwards' thought and uh, modifies it a, a, again. I think is a, is a fine way to say it, but uh, uh, I think the the next generation you could argue corrupts it, and eventually you have Unitarianism that springs out of that. Uh, uh, and I, I think it's a uh, Philip Gura. Gura, yes, Gura, yeah, Gura. I'm not right. sure how you say his last name. I think he, he makes that claim in his book on transcendentalism uh, when he's sort of tracing the pedigree. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, there's some that, that that may have happened in some uh, in circumstances. I don't actually see the the um, the, the trajectories uh, going like Edwards, new divinity, second generation new divinity, and then and then Unitarianism. I mean, there were, of course there were some that that, that took that path. Uh, the new divinity by the mid late 18th century were they they were kind of they were the ones that were kind of kept out of the uh, Yale and Harvard and the schools that trained pastors and um, right so they were kind of the backwoods pastors and they were the revivalists um, and they're the ones and, and this is one of the reasons why you had this kind of school of the prophets because uh, you would you would graduate from Harvard or Yale and uh, and and you 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 were a conservative. You wanted to be a revivalist minister. Where would you go to get the training? You would go to uh, you would get further training from these guys. Whereas it, Harvard and Yale, Harvard more so, was slowly drifting um, um, in its theological. It, it was it was becoming much more open to the Enlightenment. It was becoming more open to universalism and, and well some, but more so Unitarianism. And, um, and and so that's why I kind of see there's a distinction there. Um, I don't think the exact sh- the, the second generation New Divinity folks uh, led to um, Unitarianism. They did have some very interesting ideas, which uh, most evangelicals today would would reject. Um, they they rejected uh, the, the um, kind of a substitutionary theory of the atonement. They rejected the imputation of um, Adam's sin, the imputation of, of Christ's righteousness. Um, they, they had this, uh, and those are those are significantly alarming departures. <laughs> but what is fascinating is, and this is the history, this is the history side of me. Um, what's fascinating is um, you read these guys, you read their zeal for the scriptures, their zeal for missions. I mean, it's not like uh, their their patterns of prayer and preaching and how they're handling the scriptures. And you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, see any difference uh, between them and uh, say these earlier new divinity guys and 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 kind of a central um, 
uh, and other evangelicals of the period. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. The the the, the ethos the um, of of those folks were that they're they're the ones starting the missions agencies. Um, they're the ones, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so it, it is just it is a it's one of those interesting turns in the history of this movement uh, that you would have an evangelical movement ar- arguing for these positions. And yet um, at the same time, being at the center of what's going on, awakening wise, missions wise. So uh, that wouldn't seem to that, it doesn't fit in our minds today, but it, it was natural back then. There, there was this there was this period of about a generation where you had. You had this kind of uh, theology that was uh, prominent, and it wasn't just the new divinity. It uh, you did see some uh, Methodists even latching onto kind of a uh, what's called known as the moral governmental theory of the atonement. This was kind of an an approach to it in the early 19th century. So, so and yeah, Finney goes this way too, and we kind of see Finney. Uh, he, he's kind of the culmination of these trajectories, um, or a lot of these trajectories, and one of the reasons why he's a kind of uh, uh, so sharply criticized, and 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 rightfully so, in many of the, in in some of these in some of these uh, instances, some of these issues. Um, so he he says in one place, you know, to to affirm that justification is um, or no that um, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us is is absurd. You know, I mean, you, you read that quote just by itself, and you're just like, oh no, <laughs> no. Um, um, you're absurd, you know. You would say that. But, but <laughs> he, he is. He's. But he's faithfully stating a, a position that uh, had been for 50 years in the in this in this um, in this new divinity or the broadly this Edwardsian tradition. Um, Edwards himself did not go there. Um, that's a complicated issue. But uh, short answer to that is he, he didn't go there. But the, some of his disciples did toy with that, go there, and um, eventually em- embrace a. Full rejection of um, the imputation impu- imputation theories altogether. So, right. Although, uh, as I, as I was reading the book, I, I remember initially being sort of shocked by that, and, yeah. and then as as I keep reading, you talk about what they replace it with, and uh, and maybe maybe if you can talk about that a little bit, because honestly, the the way that you describe it sounds a lot like what kind of the rank and file of evangelicals believe today, right? Uh, maybe maybe not in so many words, but. Uh, uh, like kind of the the gut reaction to what is going on in the atonement sounds much more kind of new divinity new divinity ish than Edwardsian or or moderate evangelical. Uh, so maybe you can you can tell us a little bit about what do they replace uh, imputation with? Well, um, well, yeah, they, um, the, the 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 doctrine of imputation. Um, well, they replace with actually what's called known as this kind of principle of personal merit. Um, <clears throat> which um, um, this idea that merit, righteousness, virtue is ever is, is kind of personal. They they they, they stress this idea. Um, and how how does this apply to the? I'll do first the doctrine of original sin, and then I'll apply it to the doctrine of the atonement. They first apply it to the doctrine of the original sin. They want to. Um, um, I, I believe it's Hopkins who, who, who feels the sting of the critique in the mid-late 18th century by kind of Enlightenment critics of Calvinism that say this, how can you hold, you know, someone responsible for someone else's 
misdeed or, 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 or injustice, right? How can I, and you apply this to original sin, how can I, coming into the world, be responsible for Adam's guilt, Adam's corruption? No, I'm my own, I'm my own moral agent. And, 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 um, and this idea, it was kind of a scandal to even, uh, amongst some, some folks even kind of uh, postulate this view. You know, we don't do this in our legal system. We don't hold children responsible for the, for the crimes of their parents. Why would we do this in theology? Why would we? Why would everyone? OK, so so uh, and so they, they, they tried to tinker with this idea that um, um, principle of personal merit. I am responsible for my own sin. I receive a kind of um, an inclination, a principled inclination to sin from Adam. Yet I don't I, I don't receive guilt or, or corruption from him. I'm, I'm kind of I come into the world neutral and but, but uh, various uh, this inclination combined with various um, circumstances, societal circumstances lead me to sin and therefore I'm held responsible. You know, I, I am damned on, on the basis of that. They wanted to, to. And so they kind of drift. Sadly, they drift away from this doctrine of original sin. Um, but it, but notice how you can preach that. You can preach that you're responsible, right? You're responsible for your sin. And there were, there was a number, this backlash, and you see this in Finney, you see this in other, um, in the early 19th century, there was this backlash against this sentiment, uh, which kind of came from Calvinism that went like this amongst people in the pews or people hearing these sermons. I'm, you know, it's not God's time. I'm, I've got a, I've got sin. I'm guilty. I can't do anything. I've got, I'm in, unable. I can't do it. And the preachers, they wanted to kind of supersede that by, by, you know, pointing the finger to you and saying, no, you are responsible. You need to repent. You know, this kind of direct um, uh, call to them to, um, uh, you know, don't, don't pass it off on Adam. It's, you're responsible for your own sin. Repent, believe the gospel, and be saved. That's uh, that's how they went with that. Um, so yeah, let's apply that uh, principle of personal merit to uh, atonement. They wanted to, um, uh, since uh, uh, sin is personally meritorious, uh, um, they wanted to apply this to uh, the doctrine of uh, the atonement. Uh, how how we understand the atonement. The original view. He's getting the first Great Awakening revivalists, the moderate evangelicals, I call them, which you get in Edwards as well. It's the substitutionary view, right? Uh, <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, Christ has uh, – he lived a perfect life. His um, righteousness, uh, he, he died a death that uh, took on him the sins of the world, right, or the sins of the elect, depending on how extensive you want to go. And, and he paid for those sins. And as a result, he, um, um, uh, your sins are forgiven, and his righteousness is kind of um, accredited to your account. Um, that's the original view. Um, the, the new divinity, by applying this principle of merit, they wanted to they wanted to kind of um, transform the doctrine of atonement in a, in a different way. They wanted to say, God, he doesn't give you his righteousness. <laughs> He, 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 he gives you a pardon, right? He merely gives you a pardon. Um, and so, um, uh, so, um, and so you can be pardoned. Um, uh, they, they didn't want people to, to, to have this, this false notion that, oh, because I have the righteousness of Christ, I can live however I want, but Christ's, Christ's righteousness covers me. You know, there were 
folks, of course, that's an abuse of the doctrine. But there were folks that were kind of uh, saying things like that. Well, the new divinity said, no, no, he doesn't give you his righteousness. Um, he hasn't paid for all your sins. Um, he merely extends a pardon to you, a, 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 the pardon of a judge. Now, if he does that, that raises the question, if sins aren't paid for and he's extending a pardon, how is he just, right? How can he be just? Um, and so the answer to that, they would say, is, um, uh, is God's, uh, God's uh, moral government. They would say uh, Christ is, he, Christ's death is a public display of his hatred for sin. Um, a public display of, of, of his, um, his zeal for holiness, his hatred for sin. And if you put your faith in him, um, you, can, you, you can have this pardon extended unto you. And God can, in the, in the whole balance of the moral world, he can say, I can extend you a pardon because look how awful sin is here in, in the death of Christ. Um, it's not paying for sins, one, one, for, one sin for sin. You know, it's not like there's any payment. It's kind of a writing the balance of, uh, of showing how God both loves holiness, justice, and yet mercy. He can extend a pardon. And, uh, and so I remember when I was in a, you know, kind of a campus group, a, a parachurch campus group in college, uh, one of the ways we, they told us how to share the gospel was, you know, to emphasize both God's justice and his mercy. And this is kind of, you know, God can't show his mercy without showing this kind of uh, justice uh, track. This kind of um, sensitivity, both his justice and mercy, is kind of parallel to this, this new divinity uh, approach to the moral governmental theory, the atonement. of um, um, he, um, he, he can demonstrate his self to be just to the world by extending a pardon to you because his precious son has undergone the punishment um, so it's sort of in your place, but it's not like there's there's sins, quote unquote, being paid for. It's uh, um, it, it, and, and it's and because as, as evangelicals we're so used to this kind of um, substitutionary right metaphor and and understand it's very hard to kind of grasp the um, the, the, the the governmental uh, atonement view. So. Right. Although, although uh, I mean, obviously there there are people out there still teaching still teaching that today, and, and yeah. I think it's it's uh, I mean, I don't I guess I, maybe I shouldn't say it's a dominant theme uh, with evangelicals, but it's certainly a familiar one. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's one that we know of. Uh, uh, I mean, it's yeah, it's certainly one that I heard from time to time, even growing up in, in churches. Uh, not that it was necessarily uh, always what was preached, but it was at least there. Uh, Often combined with, you know, uh, uh, imputation uh, and uh, uh, more traditional approaches. Yes. Yep. Um, well, that's uh, we've we've been focusing, I guess, on on sort of New England and the New Divinity uh, uh, side of things. Uh, we should probably talk a little bit about the the rest of the country. Um, so uh, you 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 have a chapter on the Methodists. Uh, you have a chapter on the Baptists. Um, a chapter on the Presbyterians. Uh, uh, I mean, we're we're, we're kind of. Uh, uh, running the gamut here uh, uh can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in, in methodism uh, during yeah. this time uh what what are what are methodist revivals like and how are they distinct from some of the others yeah methodist um well I, um methodist revival theology and and it is is kind of the let's say it's the distinct um uh concoction you might want to say it, it's wesley's theology um, 
but transplanted into the American context, which is uh, open to a little bit more of a the, the wild or what they called enthusiastic um, revivals, uh, enthusiasm of the period. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, yeah, so let's pick that apart. It's Wesley's... Um, Wesley was, you know, a tra- he was a trained, the- you know, he had a lot of uh, theological training, uh, Oxford, um, but but he was a man of action, a man of vision. I mean, incredible, and a man of incredible energy. And he he organized. This was his genius. He organized, and he basically gave his his army of itinerant evangelists and ministers, you know, these horseback. Um, <clears throat> Uh, writers, uh, evangelists, and re- uh, revivalists. He he gave them his theology. He gave them what to think. He gave them how to in uh, kind of a rubric, and they were to take that and and, um, and just be missionary activists for the gospel. And um, in in the American setting, um, especially after I think the 1780s, after the American uh, Revolution, well, even before. I mean, um, 1770s, and in, in in stretching even well after into the early American Republic, they. They tended to um, have a very animated revival um, uh, services, um, again, focusing in on the you know, conviction of sin, the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the transformation that takes place, uh, weeping, shaking. Sometimes uh, you, we, we've heard recently about barking. That was an exercise that was known then. They called it the barking exercise, the barking exercise. <laughs> um, which was just basically related to what they called the jerks, uh, this kind of, um, you know, you come under this powerful conviction of the, of, of the spirit, they said, and you would start rocking back and forth and you would make these grunts that they called. Um, and, and now, sometimes uh, you read Peter Cartwright and he's like, we, we weren't looking for this. This just happened. And I wasn't. Um, and he, he, he said it was a, there was a time where this was these were popular and then it, it kind of faded away. Later, you get into the middle of the 1800s. So you have these very animated revivals, very emotional revivals. The theology motivating them was a theology that emphasized the God of love, the God who 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 um, who uh, um, he hates sin. And yet he, 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 he loves sinners. He wants sinners to come to know his uh, grace, his goodness. Um, and um, they, uh, Wesley and Arminianism tended to do away with or remove the, um, or take a pass on the, the, the Calvinist doctrines of uh, inability, predestination, limited atonement, these kind of limiting doctrines, right? And they wanted to emphasize the, 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 um, uh, the limitless reach of God's love, of God's beneficence, God's benevolence, and, uh, and and you know that it's not just a doctrine, but it's also a uh, it's also a spiritual it's a spirituality, it's a sense of the 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 greatness of God's love in, in one's life. They, and so they they emphasized um, um, uh, the, um, the the love of God, the 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 ability the, of human beings to be able to to come to Him. If, if they if they desire to want to partake of this uh, of God's love and forgiving grace, and then they all lastly they emphasized his um, God's holiness and the, and, the, and the necessity of being holy in one's own um, uh, one's own life. You don't just sit around. They they were the ones that hated the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Why? Because in their minds the, that doctrine inculcates or or uh, inculcates a kind of a couch potato spirituality. God's done it all. I'm going to be saved. 
I don't need to do anything. Um, and, and, and in the Methodist mind, uh, perseverance is, uh, is a, um, akin to antinomianism. Um, and so they, they constantly wanted to have their people and their the, uh, well, uh, um, seeking perfection, seeking Christian holiness. Um, if ever you wa- you know, wane from that, you are, you're, you're going to drift away. And so I, I tell some stories about that. They, they, they shock their people with these stories of people who uh, were negligent in their spiritual duties and, and slowly drifted away. And um, they would tell these stories. These, these, some of them are just awful stories <laughs> of, uh, of people who uh, fell away and on their deathbeds could not find uh, the Lord. And um, yeah, so. Yeah. So, yeah, there's these stories, uh, you know, it's doctrine in life, these stories uh, built into um, uh, into my book. So. Right. And, and again, I mean, they're they're uh, it's it's such an interesting uh, approach because it's as, as you point out they're they're basically doing the same thing that all of the other revivalists are doing. But with that kind of unique Wesleyan, you know, yeah. John Wesley spin on it, uh, that's. I guess I shouldn't say it's so distinct from everything else because, of course, George Whitfield was here too, uh, and he's you know not, not dissimilar from, yes. from that style, uh, uh, but obviously a different theology kind of driving uh, the the West uh, the Wesleys than than there is driving Whitfield. Yeah, and and, and Whitfield was here. He um, he was here in the uh, you know 1740 to 1770 that that zone. The the Methodist explosion in America didn't take place until late in Wesley's life. Um, 1770s through the 1830s so so it's kind of like a it's a different different era with the um and um with uh with the surge of methodism and the uh the leadership of francis asbury who uh who got here in 1770 and um and spent the rest of his life um ministering here so on horseback no less that's i I... yes oh yeah yeah i didn't never owned a piece of land never owned a house (laughs) um just amazing uh, lifestyle. The 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 the, uh, the Protestant ascetics, right? Um, so yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what what has to have been the most frustrating chapter for you to have written. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Baptists, uh, the the least systematic of of all of them. Well, um, it's not that they were least systematic. It's that they they didn't. Um, and the point I kind of bring up is that they were more of um, you know, Baptists, their identity, what, what what rallies them together is not exactly um, their revival theology, which is soteriology, conversion experiences, um, methods of preaching the gospel. Um, you could make a case that the Methodists, that's what binded them together. They had a, they had a distinctive soteriology, a distinctive way of preaching. That, what binds the Baptists together is uh, is our ecclesiology, our, our um our understanding of the ordinances and how the church is to be gathered in a certain in a congregational polity, believers' baptism, these things, <clears throat> and uh, separation from the state. Yes, yes, separate from the state, uh, religious freedom. The, these things uh, unite us. And so you're going to see in Baptists, you're going to see um, uh, a kind of a spectrum of opinions. Uh, the 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 other schools of thought that I look at here. The moderate evangelicals, the kind of the Edwardsian and New Divinity line, um, uh, Methodist um, Wesleyanism. You're, you're going to see uh, there are strands of Baptists that pick up on these, and this is what I do in that chapter. I look at 
I look at the free will Baptists. They were basically um, Baptists who, who embraced the, the fullness of Wesley's um, of the Wesleyan kind of Methodist revival theology. Um, so, um, you know, you can lose your salvation, Christian perfection. These are things that, that were articulated in, in those, uh, those Baptists. Um, I look at there are a couple Edwardsian Baptists, uh, um, the, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I explore a sermon of his in, um, that, um, that shows the direct, I would say, I mean, it's coming right out of the playbook of, of Samuel Hopkins' theology, the language used, the concepts. I mean, he is, he is there. <laughs> he's, he, he's a Hopkinsian or an Edwardsian, new to, you know, in this, in this Edwardsian tradition. Um, I look at some more Calvinistic Baptists and, uh, that, um, uh, like Jesse Mercer, I look at him a little bit. Uh, I also look at just some more pragmatist Baptists. Um, and uh, they, they're, they're more so that they're, they're picking up in this early 19th century uh, evangelical ethos. Let's not get too caught up in learning in, in, in systems, right? Let's, let's get out there and win souls. That's, that's what, um, uh, and, and so I look at, I look at these strands, and, and you, in those strands, you kind of still see today in, in Baptist life in America, you um, uh, it's, it's fair, you, you see the, you see those that are more thinking, uh, theologically oriented and who take various views. And you see those that are more pragmatically oriented who um, may have a view, but their view, uh, well, may have a wealth, or may, might have a view that's not so well thought out. That's the point I'm making. Right. Right. And of course, you've got the, uh, the, 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 the trend of anti-intellectualism blossoming in America as, as all of this is happening. Yes, yes, that is, that is blossoming in America. Um, and, and, I mean, it was part, this wasn't just in the church, this was going on um, um, uh, in, uh, in, in many places in society. Um, so, I mean, it's one, it's interesting to note that, uh, you know, I just saw this in reading a book yesterday. Um, you don't have, I mean, you, well, it was the book "Democratization of American Christianity" by Hatch. Oh, you know. Great book. Yeah, it's a very good book. Uh, it's 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 almost thirty years old, um, amazingly. But he he has a, he opens a chapter in there. He kind of talks about he he looks at the shift in um in American uh, this drift to democratization was a drift that was uh, attended with this kind of anti-intellectualization. We we don't want to be masters of the old world's thought patterns, right? We've left the old world. We're in the new world. <laughs> Um, and part of the old world's thought patterns are there's polit politics, but there's also theology. And so um, as you get this, as you segue into this period of democratization in America, you it's it's no it's no one and, and its attendant um, anti-intellectualism. Um, it's no wonder that you don't have theologians of the stature of Edwards anymore. It's no wonder you don't have politicians of the intellectual stature of, of Adams and Jefferson and Madison anymore. I mean, you, you don't. I mean, those guys just they were heavy hit powerhouse thinkers as well as politicians. Um, we, we don't have that <laughs> in later American politics. Um, I mean, you have some examples, but uh, not as much. And certainly um, not a whole generation of them, right? You might yeah, get the right. occasional one here or there. Yes, yes, but our, yes. Our, our society is designed, and, and this is a this is a rant for another time. But I mean, our society is since the 19th century designed to keep people like that from appearing. I mean, that, that's yeah. You know, we we are we are aiming at the 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 middle. You know, the democracy rather yes. than the aristocracy. Yes, and, yes. 
and that and that that manifests itself in this in what I call this revival. Well, this um, I don't like using the term anti-intellectual. They were intellectual to a degree. They, but it, it wasn't like a coherently well thought out system was driving them. You know, right. Um, Finney had a coherently well thought out system. It, it was driving him, but the people he trained, they were you know the, the and the and the, and the and this is why I kind of say he's one of the last well thought out, you know, well theologically thought thought out uh, systematizer of revival theology. The folks that came after him, um, they're just, you know, Moody, Billy Sunday. Um, you know, they weren't theologians. They were men of the people. They they knew how to speak the people's language. They could right. and they could communicate the simple gospel, which it is simple at, at the bottom, right? To 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 folks living their lives. Um, who needed who are dying who need a savior um and that's that's where things drifted that's obviously the positive side of it right is it's it's much more communicable uh the of course the the downside is uh your your intellectuals and your leadership uh, it, it can be useful to have people who are deep thinkers and and capable of of you know reflecting systematically and so on uh which i, I mean there there's just there's a lack of that uh from from then until now i think in, in american christianity Yes, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, uh, we uh, this is uh, this is all a tangent, but we uh, we uh, did a, a sort of an experiment in class. Uh, oh, this has been a few years now, but it was kind of a let's let's list American theologians who are sort of on the same caliber of you know historical theologians, and uh, there there were some, but they were almost exclusively apologists. Uh, that is, yeah. uh, people whose job is to not water it down. That's not fair. But whose whose job is to translate great truths into the common tongue. So even even our great thinkers, they they still end up being kind of kind of popular in the in their level of writing. Yeah, uh, I think yep. the yeah I think the one person we came up with was Francis Schaeffer, and of course he moved to Europe. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. Um, well, I, I I was gonna save this for for later, but that's maybe a good place to bring in uh, the Campbellites. Uh, yes. Uh, your last chapter deals with. Uh, uh, the 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 two outliers I, I guess in in the uh, in the revivalists uh, the 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 Presbyterians and the Campbellites uh, where uh, and I, I want to come back to Finney we you know we, we sure. jumped over him but uh, 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 where uh, where do the uh, the Princeton theologians uh, and the the Campbellites fit into revivalism and and how are they interacting with the other streams. Yeah, no, that's good. That uh, this you're referring to the last main chapter of the of the book. Um, I kind of it's what do I call it? I call it the uh, two responses to modern revival theology. Um, these were um, <clears throat> these were, uh, uh, and I, I look at these two somewhat thought out. In the in the case of Princeton, that was very well thought out. Uh, two kind of right. uh, theological right. answers to this um, this phenomena of American revivalism, you know, uh, giving a critique and appraisal of it, or, or uh, and maybe filing a minority report of dissent, you know, against it. Um, and so I um, I had wanted to add another uh, group, uh, but I wasn't able to at the time. I wanted to look also at the Mercersburg uh, School, of, uh, which is a small. School of oh, Theology sure, sure, sure. in um, uh, Philip Schaff and John Nevin. Um, um, they were also another uh, group um, that kind of uh, wanted to offer a different model of what it means to become a Christian, what it means to share the gospel, etc. And, and so, but I, I basically took um, these two groups: the Princeton Calvinists, Presbyterians, 
and the uh, the Restorationists or the uh, Disciples of Christ. They're different. They go by a bunch of different names. Um, uh, but I look at Alexander Campbell ex- you, exclusively because he was the most um, he's the most prolific author of the movement. And so got I can't I can't do a full blown study. So what I do is I, I look at these two movements and I, and they're offering very different uh, kind of a they're giving a response to American revivals. The Princetonians, they, um, they're, they're high Calvinist Presbyterians that, um, um, and there's a little bit of latitude among them. Um, uh, they generally, they don't like this kind of deeply emotive, in, what they would call enthusiastic, we might call, we might use the term charismatic, right? Um, deeply enthusiastic revival experiences. They, they generally wanted to, to, to turn away from that, but they weren't closed to revivals altogether. Um, uh, and generally, you'll have someone like Charles Hodge looking back with fondness on the First Great, uh, first great Awakening and, and liking what he sees there. Um, his mentor at Princeton, Archibald Alexander, was actually a revivalist uh, himself in his early um, um, preaching days and was more open to the um, to uh, kind of movements, uh, you, know, rev- you know, local congregational revivals. Um, uh, but um, uh, but uh, Hodge was, I guess, because he, he saw a lot of the, uh, the, the, the wild stuff. He, he was generally a little less um, happy about them, and, and, and they, they basically together, Hodge and Alexander and the Princeton School generally will have, um, will argue for a, an openness to a moderate, revi- moderate uh, revival, but they will also emphasize, and this is Hodge more so than Alexander, they emphasize more of a catechization of, uh, of children, of extending the gospel through the family line, right? Um, and even, um, and even, Put forth the idea that you know you're so saturated the 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 environment the culture of the home is so saturated with the gospel and the Bible that the child might grow up and not even know a time when he or she was not a believer right um, sometimes you come across folks that way they there's fruits of the spirit but they haven't they haven't had this identifiable what, what um, conversion experience they just they don't know a time that's um and and hodge would would argue that yeah that's very a legitimate way of coming to the faith um um, <clears throat> um and so I, I explore that and you know i do it in about eight to ten pages i can't go into it in too much depth but they have a they have a they have a very robust kind of critique of um the modern revivals the modern american revivals in their writings Especially and, uh, of the Arminian theology driving. Yes, right. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't like any of that. <laughs> um, uh, the Restoration Movement or Campbell Campbellites, um, they, um, I've always been fascinated by them because they have. Uh, well, uh, it's hard to talk about the Restoration Movement. There were there were there were a whole bunches of different ones, but when we look sure. exclusively at uh, Campbell and and his his group. <clears throat> we see um, an approach to embracing the gospel, a revival theology that's kind of like, you might want to say, anti-emotionalistic. Um, they argue that, uh, that you know, to embrace the gospel is, 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 is much like an intellectual kind of education. You, if you apprehend, you see the, the gospel... Um, uh, claims, and you come to affirm their testimony. 
and believe and you know just affirm intellectually that they're true well then then you're then you've been saved and you need to seal that that conversion with um with with baptism and entering into the community of, of faith um they, this was um they, they're drawing upon a little known group in the 18th century called the sandemanians which kind of popped up in england and new england and these were kind of like anti-emotional um um Let's see, biblicist uh, Christians that 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 emphasize that coming to faith is not this kind of pietistic kind of emotive experience. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. No, no, no. You you just came to an awakening of the truth, and now you're a savior. Uh, and, and the restoration movement kind of went this way. They um, um, embracing the gospel is not this kind of introspective affair uh this this massive um spiritual pilgrimage like 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 uh christian in pilgrim's progress right it's not that it's just uh i come to I come to see the gospel I, I i consider the gospel claims they're true you're saved right that's a little bit extreme but it, that it's it's in the ballpark of what they were after and um and so i i, I found that kind of fascinating um they uh, they rejected this kind of approach to uh, the the idea of conviction of sin prior to um, prior to uh, um, salvation. Um, they did not affirm that. They just thought it was that was a uh, that was something that was extraneous and too introspective and leading people into the um, the labyrinth of the inner life that that uh, that's that's not biblical Christianity. Did, did they think you had to believe in sin and guilt, or well, yes. just that you didn't have to feel it? Uh, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You, you should, um, right. You, you, you should, you should come to the awareness. Yeah. I'm a sinner. It's not, it's not rocket science. I don't have to feel and go through all these stages of feeling that I am totally lost and I have no resources in me. Right. And I know that I have no resource. No, they're like, it, it's an aware. I, I'm, you're, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Okay. I, I agree. The gospel is true. I need to embrace that, and 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 they, um, uh, Campbell and many of the, um, the they they were anti-Calvinists. Uh, they emphasized a, a strong, robust freedom of the will as a, uh, as a it's a it's a principle of of, of re, you know a, a first principle of reason to believe that, uh, and so you can pursue and follow and just change your belief structure. So yeah, and that, that uh, anti-Calvinist freedom of the will, I think, is probably a good place to uh, to to go to the. Uh, uh, the guy who is just going to dominate any book about American revival, uh, right? Uh, uh, Charles Finney, uh, Charles Grandison Finney, uh, uh, which yeah, uh, yeah. great, great even preacher name attached to him. Uh, and, yes. and uh, I, I will say for all my growling about him, uh, clearly the guy was a phenomenal preacher, uh, led countless scores of people to Christ. So, you know, as, yes. as far as that yep. goes, you know, uh, fantastic. Um, uh, but, but tell us about Finney. Where do you, where do you even start with him? Oh boy. Um, where do you start with him? He was a, um, he's, uh, one place we could start with him is he is this, he's kind of a hinge figure between, you know, we've been talking about these intellectuals and these pragmatists. I think in his heart, he's a, he's a pragmatist, but he is, he is intellectual. He's intellectually, I mean, he, he, he studied law. He knew how to reason and argue a case, um, very well. <laughs> and um, 
and, um, and, and he studied um, the theology of the more extreme New England theological tradition. Even though you read his writings, he, he, he wants to give you the impression that he came up with it himself. But he, he's, he's in a tradition. He's, he's not like he didn't just drop down from the sky. Right. He's, he's in a tradition. <laughs> and, and he, modified, he knew his Edwards very well. Yeah, He, right? he knows Edwards. He knows he knows uh, Nathaniel William Taylor um, and, and some of these other guys. And so, um, but he, uh, he is a man of action, a man, a pragmatic uh, individual, and he just wants to uh, clear, clean away the slate of all, any types of inability, anything that might keep you, any kind of intellectual structure or practical kind of spiritual inhibition that, 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 that gives you a reason why you could not come to faith. He wants to get rid of all that and just say, you, you can <laughs> It's uh, you can come to him. Put away your excuses. There are no excuses. Come to the Savior, right? Um, so I mean that's one way. I, and I do think deep down, I mean that's the key to understanding him is he's a he's a pragmatist who who has thought a lot about these things and yet who has a theology. But um, but at the end of the day, his theology is not going to it's not it's not a robust. Oh, I used that term earlier. It's a well thought out system, but it, but it's not going to stand alongside of these other systems that we looked at because because um, uh, he he's trying to do his own thing, and so um, uh, so so he, he is a theologian, a thinker, but he's a prag more of a pragmatist, and that's how we can read some of his statements, some of his shocking statements uh, that sound like um, that he's he's a full blown Pelagian. Um, um, so, uh, like when he says, you know, revival is not a miracle. I mean, I, I think most people who don't like Finney, that's the only quote they know about him. But, um, um, and that's like on the page one or two of his, of his famous, uh, lectures on revival. But I, I kind of read that book as a, um, it's a practical manual and, um, you know, and if you read it on that level, well, there, there's some good stuff you can get from it. Um, but 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 have your theological radar up and, and some of the things he says like that you can can like uh, that are more um, problematic. You can just lay aside. So that would be my first way to uh, think about him. Um, he's a pragmatist um, who, who who did try to think systematically about uh, revival theology. Um, so but 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 most of the folks that came after him, like I mentioned earlier, did not. Um, so let's see, how else might we uh, uh, approach him? Um, um, yeah, I do place him at that kind of that extreme end of this uh, trajectory, this what I call the Edwardsian trajectory. And that, that's a debated point um, in, the, in the literature. People um, will want to uh, kind of um, they want to distance him. You want to have anything Edwardsian kind of attached to his name. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I think that the... the, the, the the language he uses, the categories that he employs, even though he modifies some of them, it's clearly operating. He's coming out of. He's coming. He's operating within that tradition, even though he might um, disagree with some of its features. So, right. I mean, he's, he's clearly stealing. Well, stealing. He's clearly using. Uh, you know, the, the, some of the preaching style, right? Some of the the imagery. Yep. Some of the. Uh, uh, and and of course, he loves the revival, yep. like he loves the awakening. Right. He, he loves what's happening there and wants to recreate that. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's totally fair to, to say that he is an Edwardian oh, yeah, yeah. In, in some senses, uh, again, with the, the jettisoning of the Calvinism. But even then, like you said, I, I think it's pretty clearly just pragmatic. Uh, I mean, maybe again, maybe this is too cynical, but I, I do get the feeling on 
on looking at Finney that if he thought more people would become Christians by you know Calvinism, he would just go that route and be perfectly <laughs> happy doing that also. But, yeah. uh, again, it's it's what what works. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah well, yeah. And, and Calvinism for him didn't work because it, it, it binds people into, you know um, – all these different inabilities that they just find themselves, uh, you know, it's like getting caught in a spider web. They can't get out of, you know, damned. If you do, you're damned. If you don't, I can't do this. I can't. He just wanted to do away with all that and say, you know, come forward, come to the anxious bench. Pre uh, now um, we, we should, we should uh, do away with the caricature that he, um, that he was urging easy believism in the sense that, you know, he, he's doing away completely with, um, he, he wasn't like the, the Campbellites and, and doing away completely. He wasn't of, with, um, conviction. I mean, he wanted to see people come under conviction. They, um, 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 he has a very rich, this is another thing that comes, that may come as a surprise. He has a very rich, uh, understanding of the Holy spirit and, and the necessity of the spirits, um, um, activity and um, in in the salvation process, um, you know, he, he says in many places, you know, unless the Spirit of God intervene, you know, no one will will come to faith. Even though you have a natural ability and a moral ability to come and follow Him, you're you're, you're so lost in your own um, seeking your own ends and your own desires that you you'll never you'll never do anything unless the Spirit does come and um, intervene. And so. Um, uh, that's often missed in some of uh, Finney's harshest uh, critics. You don't see that side of him, but he, he does he does talk about that. But at the same time, he's not as systematic. He'll talk about, I think what I, I raise in the book, I'll talk about the, the three agents of conversion, right? Um, there's the agency of the sinner. You know, I am coming to faith, right? Or I'm believing. Faith is a believing. You know, we're doing something. For any any Christian who comes to faith, they're doing something. It's not like completely right, right. There's and then there's the agency of the spirit. The spirit is is at work. And then there's the agency of the the preacher. The preacher is the one who calls uh, forth. Um, and and Finney was like he he didn't he didn't uh, go in and say let let's try to figure out where the exact lines are between those three agencies. Let, let let's let's construct a theology so. Sound. Let, let's get into the nitty gritty. And, and he, he was like, he was just, um, he was satisfied with just saying, these three are necessary, <laughs> you know. Um, and let's let's just call people to faith. Like like I, I think I mentioned in the book his uh, his illustration of the guy walking in in a, in a trance towards the Niagara Falls. I don't know if you remember that. He uses this illustration a number of times in his sermons. The uh, the man is about he, he's deep in thought and he's about ready to to to, pull, to walk over the falls. But then, uh, as he's about ready to take that last step, you call out and yell, "Stop!" And he 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 comes to his senses and he realizes what he what he's about to do. And uh, um, and he's like, "Who who saved this guy? The guy who yelled stop? The guy who stopped? The the God who kind of providentially oversaw this whole thing? You know." The answer he'd say is yes, <laughs> and um, and you know and, and you know to to a lot of people uh, that that will that'll preach that'll work. I get it. Um, right. I, I as a theologian would want to go a little bit more in depth to drawing out, but he he's like I'm just I'm just going to go with that. And, right. Well, and, and and even you know even Jonathan Edwards the the Calvinist would have been fine with that you know with that analogy as long as you could could build on in a way yeah that. right and, and Finney's like you said just doesn't care about yes. that right uh, um, yes yes. 
Well, uh, I, I have uh, two sort of concluding questions I, I want to ask you since we are had you here for almost an hour now and we shouldn't keep you too long. Um, but uh, 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 before we get to that, you, you end with a, uh, I guess, a, a conclusion or a postscript uh, talking about a revival uh, in modern evangelical thought. Uh, what, what is your read on the, uh, the, the state of evangelical reflection about revival today? Uh, what I specifically call revival theology, um, I think that we have, uh, we, we basically reproduce one of these systems that have already been developed, if we reproduce it at all. Like, we could just be pragmatists, have a, have a mere theology, a mere way of doing things, um, and, uh, and a lot of people will, that's enough for them, and a lot of ministers, that's enough for them, and it, and it yeah, so... Um, but uh, but if 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 you have your theologians, you have the theologically inclined among us, you will generally have a reproducing of one of these older systems that I that I canvas in the book. Um, um, you don't have anything new popping up or coming down the pike, um, and and that's I think part of that is because um, uh, well, there's lots of reasons for that. I, I um, one of the reasons is I think revival is not considered a um, in the 18th century, revival was considered something you could intellectually consider and, and think through, right? It, it, was, it was worthy of academic reflection. Right. Nowadays, you know, we associate revival with uh, kind of uh, folks on TV that do pretty weird things. <laughs> and and we, we write it off, right? Right. And so we're not going to even consider that as a... As a um, as something for academic, theolo- rich ac- theological reflection. And, um, and so that's one reason why I say uh, there's really not much new thought on this. Um, right. And yeah, I think I, I think I completely agree with that. Uh, so I, I'm, I have friends who are, who are deeply concerned with the life of the local church and, and sort of bringing evangelical focus back on that and who are simultaneously deeply concerned with vision and evangelism and witnessing and so on. Uh, but the, uh, putting those two things together, right? How do you, how do you draw the line between witnessing to individuals and then being a member of a local church that's healthy and vibrant and robust and so on? Uh, that's, that's where revival and that, that is a gap, right? I mean, uh, both, both as far as I know at the scholarly level, but also at the popular level, there there just aren't books coming out on that, at least not that are necessarily we'd recommend. Um, and that's why I wrote this. I, 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 I've always, I've been fascinated by the, the interplay of, um, Theology, life, um, and conversion, revivals, and this is one reason that drew me to Edwards. I, I, he, you see that in his his writings. I mean, he's a thinker, he's a feeler, uh, he does these things. He, he, he's um, he's a pastor, a preacher, a, a, a speculative theologian. He's all of these things, and he's he's bringing that depth to this issue. And I uh, I I. I um, just um, I've always found that fascinating. That's why I wanted to read, write this book. It was about 10 years ago. I just it was like, I have to write this. Right. This was the book I had to write. Um, so and, and I'm thankful that it's done. I'm thankful that it's out there. So no, I'm, and I'm, uh, if I if I haven't said this listener, uh, this is a great book. So I'm, I'm Thank you. happy to recommend it and, and say go out and get it. Uh, well, uh, two two questions. Uh, 
uh, by not really criticisms, but uh, things that I, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about. Uh, first, uh, kind of conspicuous by their absence in your book are, are two groups that, uh, uh, that that either have their roots in the Second Great Awakening or really take off in America during that time, uh, the, the Roman Catholics and the Mormons. Uh, I, I suppose you could throw Unitarians in there as well, but as, especially the Roman Catholics and the Mormons. Uh, where, where did they fit into all of this revivalist stuff going on? Yeah, no, those are, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I... Um revival revival preaching generally it's been associated with um with more protestant traditions and so i mean yeah you have evangelistic preaching in um in the catholic world but you don't really associate or at least you don't see the as rich of a um open air evangelistic type of um 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 you know yeah, sorry. Um, you, you, you don't get this. Uh, what, what we normally consider as revival, you don't see, or at least I haven't seen too much in the, uh, in, the in Catholic history. Um, and uh, their their approach to uh, you know conversion is is much uh, is a different uh, is is much different. And thus and thus you know when I when I was kind of finding the the limitations for the book, I, I basically wanted to. Uh, kind of hover around this this century between the first and second great awakening and um and so i didn't i didn't really consider uh thinking about roman catholics i did come across there were actually in the second great awakening there were some um roman catholics that actually that that did in england and um and america embrace some of finney's uh, revival methods and new measures and and applied them in the catholic context uh finney talks about in one area he he met with a, a catholic priest in in england and um in one of his uh, two uh, british um tours and and this guy basically was uh finney says he 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 does all the same measures i do calls people to to um to the gospel or his own understanding of the gospel and yet believes in transubstantiation. He's like, go figure. He was just completely amazed at this there. Uh, but that's, that's a minority. You don't, um, and so, but Catholicism is generally, uh, it's generally grown as a result of the, the, you know, the, the, um, the nations, the ethnic groups that have, um, that have, uh, Immigration in America, and that, that's where you get the explosion, um, the, the source of the explosion of uh, Catholicism in the mid-late 18th century, the 1800s. Uh, Mormons, um, because Mormons are so, um, their, their theology is so, um, uh, it, it's not in the ballpark of Orthodox Christianity. Um, I, I, to, to put it, yeah. To put it that way, I, I didn't really want to treat them. At the same time, they were a um, they, they were much of a, a communalistic type of group. That um, that's they brought people into their their communities, um, and and they're very structured communities. That that was, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert here on Mormon history and Mormonism, but as, as I understand it, that was more of the the appeal of, of their group rather than a explicit evangelistic. Um, uh, preaching, um, but I, I know they did have some of their evangelists too. So, so that's um. So I didn't I didn't uh, consider to treat uh, them. Um, um, yes, um, Mormons were at this kind of end of the spectrum of uh, the, the, these kind of radical groups that that kind of erupted in the early 19th century in America, um, and, and you do see people kind of drifting in and out of like. Um, uh, 
Mormonism to uh, the Campbellite movement and then going back. I mean, it, that, that's a fascinating feature of the, uh, the kind of the intra-conversions of, of these uh, more radical groups. But um, and so that but the reason I, I chose to to embrace the uh, at least the Campbellites is that they had more of a, a biblicist biblical orientation that uh, wasn't open to new revelations like with uh, Smith and um, and that approximated um, um, kind of historic Protestant uh, Christianity. Um, I know they have some problems with the Trinity, but I think they've fixed that. <laughs> Anyways, so, uh, one other, one other question uh, at the uh, at the end of the book, as as we've already talked about, we you argue that there's uh, there's no theology of of modern revivals. Uh, so I, sure. I have to ask because of where I live in, in Southwest Missouri, uh, uh, what do you do with the Pentecostals? Uh, I mean, have have they taken the place of revival thought? Uh, have we just sort of outsourced everything to them? Uh, yeah, no, that, that that's that's a great question. The um, um, yeah, I don't. I don't mean there's no revival. I mean there's uh, there's no new revival theologies. I think uh, if I haven't read it recently, <laughs> what I wrote. Um, but there's uh, what I mean is there's no, there's no new fresh kind of updated um, revival theology like 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 the system. Oh, but but Pentecostalism is always fresh, right? <laughs> yeah. No. And and I would say okay. Yeah. So I'll put a caveat on that. I, I would say yes, there is something new there in Pentecostalism, and it is. Um, that would be the one movement that I would say would uh, would counter that conclusion. Um, the point I made when I mean there's no new revival thing, I mean there's no like uh, there's. Uh, um, it's only been in the last 20 years that you're you're 20 30 years you're starting to see Pentecostals actually starting to produce some rich, I mean well thought out academic theology. Uh, the first 75 years, um, you know, up until about 1980 or 1990, you you you, you have. Um, you have the pragmatic, experiential. Uh, you have pragmatic experientialists, for lack of a better term, um, that uh, basically were, were very much like what you'd have after after Finney. Like I was saying, in the broader evangelical world, um, you don't have the like like a Moody or a Sunday. They're 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 practitioners. They're not thinking. Uh, to, they have their basic theological points, but they're not bring uh, kind of a, a depth to a theological system. You know, you're starting to get that. And, um, and so, so I would say, yes, there's something new. There is a new, a different revival theology there. But two, I'm saying uh, the point, I guess, is that they're just now coming to rationally, I mean, theologically sift that out, right? Um, uh, in, in, in a mature theological uh, way. So I'm actually writing a uh, writing a response to a book. There's a book now coming out. Um, the guy I co-wrote the Trinitarian theology of Jonathan Edwards with, uh, Stephen Studebaker. He's a he's an Assemblies of God. He's a Pentecostal, and he is um, he's editing a book called uh, From Northampton to Azusa Street, and it's a group of um, of uh, Pentecostal theologians who are engaging Edwards's thought and saying, okay, how can we use him? How can we appraise him? How can, what, what can we, what can we take? What can we take away? And so th this, I think is a, is a, is an interesting strand of Edwards studies. that's going to pop up in the next, maybe uh, 10 years, 20 years or so is, um, you know, we're going to see a Pentecostals engaging Edwards, um, you know, the, the facets of Edwards that um, are, um, uh, that are usable for uh, Pentecostals. Uh, so having said that, um, so that uh, good question. Um, yes, they are. Uh, uh, it is a new 
revival theology uh, that is yet to be and is only now be, becoming much more thoroughly thought through <laughs> and uh, and systematized. So um, my hunch is that it wouldn't be that different than the Pentecost. I mean, the, the, the Methodist holiness movement. I mean, because that's where they, they came out of. They came out of it. And so you're going to have some similarities with uh, the, the Methodist um, tradition of revival theology that I uh, explore in the book, you're going to have some um, sure, sure, uh, sure. Uh, like overlapping of that with the Pentecostal. So. Right. Well, uh, as always on Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, we let the guest have the last word. Uh, so tell us what you, uh, what you think we need to know about revival or life, the universe, everything, uh, whatever you like. <laughs> well, I just... Um, yeah, thank you for that. I uh, would just want to leave readers with this um, uh, this idea that I, I close out the book with. Um, Edwards was a man, Jonathan Edwards, who thought deeply, felt deeply, um, had a rich spirituality, a rich spiritual theology. Um, and he, he was able to bring all those tasks, uh, all those aspects to bear upon a, the, the life of the mind, the life of the heart, the life of the Christian mind, and the life of the Christian community and how God invades and, and transforms our communities. And that we can take, um, we can take his example and to, to reformulate, rethink through uh, these revival theologies that I've canvassed in this book and perhaps come up with something new. Uh, something better, something more in, a, in a, that, that's reaping the the fruits of recent biblical and systematic and philosophical scholarship in the evangelical world. Um, I have not seen that. I mean, I'm surely there's there's room for that to take place in uh, evangelical theology. Well, thank you, Dr. Caldwell, for joining us. And thank you, listener, for joining in as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on our show notes at christianhumanist.com. Email them to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Please do be sure to pick up a copy of Theologies of the American Revivalists available now from InterVarsity Press. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is Britt Stack. And be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.